This chat was recorded on August 27, 2020 in Barkerville, BC. Hi there. This is Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Today we're going to Barkerville Historic Town and Park to have dinner with Danette Boucher and James Douglas. Now Matt and Danette and I go way back to the UVic Theatre program where Danette and I were the two women in the class of five that finished the acting program together. Danette is the writer and director for the Theatre Royal in Barkerville and she's one of the historical interpreters playing Miss Florence Wilson. James Douglas is a BC filmmaker and the public programming and media development lead for Barkerville Historic Town and Park. So you're in for a treat, particularly if you're interested in BC history. We'll hear the story about the murder along the Caribou Wagon Road and how it became BC's own little gold rush CSI story. We're going to talk about the inclusion of the First Peoples programming at Barkerville and how Mike Rataskett and Cheryl Chapman got involved. And then because Danette was one of the other actors in the play reading, WROL, Without Rule of Law, about which you've heard so much over the last couple of weeks, we'll get giggly about that. And we'll talk about music and live theater. And then James gives us the lowdown on the making of his award-winning film, The Doctor's Case, based on a Stephen King short story. This hour is fully loaded. I recommend listening to this one in a quiet space because the restaurant we were in was kind of noisy, so I had a tough time evening out the levels. So dish up some Chinese food and pull up a chair. Bon appetit. We're here at the Long Duck Tong, Long Duck Tong. Long Duck Tong restaurant, mm-hmm. Chinese restaurant in Barkerville, and we are here with <laughs> Mouthful. <laughs> that was perfect. You Danette Boucher. <laughs> and James Douglas. Yay, Excellent. welcome. There, Thank that's you. all the business out of the way. <laughs> mm. I've never been in here before oh, because really? because it's a restaurant. I didn't come and if I'm not coming to eat, I don't feel like I can come in and look around. So what a neat building. It's a lovely building. It's a it's a reconstruction. It was built in the ni- early 90s or was it late 90s? I think it was in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the express purpose of being a restaurant. Mm-hmm. But it's got a really great sort of authentic feel to it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the Chinese community was primarily men and they <coughs> divided themselves into Tongs, which is like a fraternal mm-hmm. group. So they were based basically on their, their surname, which also like where they were from in China. So yeah, it's the Minyi Tong and the Chi Tong. So that's what that means. Mm-hmm. Tongs, that they sort of took care of each other and that's how they... Community group of yeah. sorts. Yeah. And, wow. the, and the Chi Kun Tong, which is sort of the most famous of them. And the, there's the building that's here. It was the Hongmen's Association and they started out sort of, it's not re- not really a paramilitary organization, but they had started in response to what they assumed was an impending war between the North and South in China. And they were going out in a diaspora to a variety of different uh, continents and specifically gold rushes because they were mining, it's very Southern part of China. They were mining community anyway. So they were mining for gold in places like Barkerville and then sending a large percentage of that back to China so that they could build fortresses basically around some of those southern Chinese cities. Those are called dialus and there's a, a couple of them in southern China that are UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Um, and it's a direct connection to places like Barkerville 
where, oh, wow. and this, so wow. the Chikuntong was created here with that intent, and it was also then, it, like the other ones, it acted as sort of a community organization and place for people to come. So when other Chinese miners came to town, they'd know where to go, and they could get set up with a little bit of a stake and a place to stay for a little while. There was sort of medicinal services out of there and hospice services mm -hmm. for end of life and that kind of thing. But then it eventually, there, it was a non-violent or relatively non-violent revolution. Um, so its original purpose morphed um, into more, more of a, a benevolent association and community and sports organization. So now the, the Hongman part of it now is uh, sort of a, a martial arts youth program. And then the sort of high-ranking community members in Vancouver, for example, are... Thank members you. Of thank you very much what they now call the Chinese Freemasons but right, oh, right yeah. yeah and but that's a direct descendant of the Chi Kung Tong who knew <laughs> James <laughs> <He did. laughs> well we when I first started in, from nine three was my first in Barkville we did the town tour went from where we started now to the end of Chinatown mm -hmm. which I still have no idea how we managed that like it's an insane amount of information yeah but we then uh, faith came and they started the Chinese history tours so it ended up that uh, I, I still know like a lot about Chinatown. So sure. when Lisa and Bo came, we had two new Chinese interpreters this year. But I, my, when they first came, I brought them up here and I said, to be Twitter. It's like I haven't said any of this since 1997. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to get it a little more integrated so it sure. doesn't have that look. But the other false impression that, get, or the, another reason you get that impression of it being a sort of a separate outskirts kind of place is because. Now we come into the town backwards, right? Like when when they were originally coming to town, they were coming over the hill, walking north, and that's why Saint Savior's Church is facing the way that it is and where it is in the town because it's meant to be sort of the ulti your ultimate destination. That welcoming, yes, right. that here, right? welcoming image from the far yeah. end of the town. Oh, I can yeah. see. Yeah. So the town, the part of town that is primarily the Chinatown, was actually the very first thing that you would walk through when you right. when you came in, rather yeah. than the last thing. Yeah, I can't remember at what point I finally realized that, oh no, the Caribou Wagon Road came from yeah. there, yeah. where we go now. And does it switch? It's like turn of the century, isn't it, or something, when it, they switch and it comes in this way? I actually don't think it was until the proper development of wells, because that's when you had a service road. It might have been, but it wouldn't have been that much... Yeah. So maybe in the 1920s. Then that actually opens up a question that I had that I was going to ask whoever was representing the judiciary when we were here the other day, and we never got back. So the the story about the trial, about the the robbery and the murder that took place out on Highway 26. Yeah. Where were they going? Where were they coming from? If that's where it took place, not up on the actual. Well, because so. Either the way that, because the way that you went was um, approximately where the Highway 26 turnoff is now, and would follow along right up until that area that they were in, um, and then you the road went along there, and then it went a little bit further past because it was basically yeah. where the Stanley Road is now. Okay. And so then you the road went that way, and then oh, thank you. And then up over the hills to another town called Van Winkle, and then to Richfield here. Okay. So it was really just that last little loop. So it does kind of like a, like a circuitous pick up this town, pick up this town, pick up this town, and then. Yeah, because they were following the creeks, right? So it right. was where the where the gold in the creeks. Right. One, okay. one thing that's quite um, deceptive. Oh, is this for us? This too? Them? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. One thing that's quite deceptive. We just ordered a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, is that the idea that it's a straight line? 
like you yeah. know, Wells is over there. Yeah. In my mind, it's over there. Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. the way you go. That, that's where <laughs> that's I would, right. it's there. Yeah, it's, it's like just right over the top so, of that. Of course. Yeah, so yeah. there's not like, and the if you see the Barkerville Highway from up above, it's not like Quinnell. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like yeah. meanders all over the place. So. Well, I thought it took I, me a long time to get that. Sure. Because people, the first time. I'd worked here for a couple of years, and Brad was talking about Wells on the tour, and he was pointing over there. And I was like, why were you pointing over there? He's yeah, like, because yeah. that's where Wells is. And I was like, <laughs> Wells is down the road that way. And he's like, no, it's on the up. So when you're in Wells, you're looking at the other side of this mountain. Once I figured out the location of the wagon road, like I thought it went up through Likely and all that. Like that was part of it? Going no, that, that was way? the 1861 pack trail. Oh, so and that's different. That's different, yeah. Okay. So the, the wagon road was... Um, built in this that area probably by about 1864 coming up spicy no not at all what is that it's a buddhist feast so it's tofu and vegetables oh so yeah so the 1861 pack trail is the original prospectors who came up into the area those that was how they got here okay when they built the road by then there was sort of enough of a population disbursement around they kind of knew where everybody was okay and it was also kind of needed to be the most oh, the easiest terrain to go through right yeah yeah easiest to build and, long and, and <laughs> sort of connecting the dots of the people who already were settled so. yeah thank you for me one of the more interesting things about that murder trial um, is those two fellows charles morgan blessing uh, who was from Massachusetts, no, Idaho, he was from Idaho, and uh, Wellington Delaney Moses, who was his friend they'd met en route yeah. coming up to the goldfields. Right. And just before Quinellmouth, they met um, this fellow James Berry, and who began traveling with them, and then Moses stays behind in Quinellmouth. Berry and Blessing continue on the wagon road, and they agree to meet Moses in Van Winkle. When he gets there, neither of them are there. Right. Um, he gets onto Barkerville. James Berry's here, but he said he left Blessing behind on the trail. And then Moses starts to think that, and I mean, Wellington Delaney Moses was an incredible guy already, right? Like he'd been part of an underground railway type mm. um, movement to bring African American families up into Canada, right? Sort of around the onset of the Civil Okay. So he's here, and he starts to think that Barry has done something to his friend, so mm-hmm. he starts a citizen's investigation, and it ultimately uncovers... Oh my, thank you. Ultimately uncovers... This is amazing. The, yeah, it's... <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately uncovers the evidence that, that convicts Barry, and he's one of the two executions. But for me, I, I always I consider it to be hope. like a CSI caribou. Because okay. <laughs> yeah. the reason Barry got caught, he, when as soon as they found the, the body out um, by what is now Troll Ski Resort, mm-hmm. right. um, Blessings Grave, which, by the way, is the smallest historic site in British Columbia. I oh. like oh. stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> as soon as Barry, Barry leaves, he gets on a stagecoach and leaves Thank town. You. And the, there was a constable here at the time, I think his name was Sullivan, who remembered that they had just installed a telegraph at Soda Creek that went all the way down to Yale. Oh. And now this is 1866. The telegraph was invented in 1865, oh, and they already right. have one. So this here. is new technology. Right. Totally. He jumps on a horse, rides overnight, gets to that telegraph, and wires um, Barry's description to the con- constables in Yale. So no they arrest him way. when he gets off the stagecoach. Holy cow! First time in history that a telegraph was used during a murder investigation. Wow! And you can go to all those places, like yep. Soda Creek. Is, the town's not there anymore, but. You can go there. The area is there, yeah. yeah. Do you want some of this, Matt? Uh, yeah. Singapore noodles. 
This that's is my favorite. Holy smokes. Is it the Szechuan beef? That's my favorite. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's one of ours. Let me say about that fairy trail that there's a woman named Ann Walsh who comes up here every once in a while. She hasn't been in a while. She's quite getting quite she's old. She's coming on Saturday. Oh, is she? That's really? so funny. <laughs> For probably her last year. Yeah. But. She's quite old now, but she wrote children's books. She writes children's novels. Okay. And she wrote one called Moses Murder and Me about this trial. And like for a little while, every school kid in BC was, it was kind of like that, the Harry Potter of, it, that was kind of back in the 90s. Like, but yeah, kids, like, it, but yeah. kids would come up specifically looking for Moses. Wow. Stopping mm -hmm. at the graves. So it was like a pilgrimage, you know? No. <laughs> that was sort of fun. Oh, there's more? Holy cow. Oh, one yes. more. Yeah. Wait, one more. <gasps> what is the other one? Just vegetable. The other oh, vegetables. vegetables. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Jim's order. That's right? me, Mr. Yes. Jim's. <laughs> Mr. Are James, you to you. Uh, I'm winning the pool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. I <laughs> The year we were up here, you were doing your one-woman show. I was at the theater that year. Oh, Bride of Barkerville was when you saw that. Yeah, okay. So I remember that was so trippy. You guys, and I usually do work in front of hosts, but Maya was sick that day, and so I was taking tickets and I was like, Oh my God! It's been a long time, but I recognize you. I know you people. Now we've we've just learned so much about BC history. You're talking about this book about the. Blessing and the yeah. robber and all. everything I know about BC history just about is from coming to Barkville. <laughs> and the, as far as I know, the only person to play Moses here was Alvin was Sanders. Alvin Sanders. Who's now um, he's the president Tate of, on um, oh yeah Riverdale. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the president of the of the UBCP, the Union of BC right. Performers. Yeah. yeah, super nice guy. We've talked about a, a bit about this a couple of times, just about how the with the new COVID setup in Barterville, where you guys aren't out there doing the funny little scenes and stuff like that, which are great. And I was I was worried I was going to miss that. The plus about this setup was that we've got this person's undivided attention for basically as long as we want, unless there's somebody coming up behind us. Mm -hmm. And so we took advantage of that so many times and just. People what do. else can you tell me? What else can you tell yeah, me? There are people who stay for an hour. Yeah, easy. One thing I wish you'd seen though was that, I don't know if you saw it, but we did a scene, confederation scene where there's a annexation as to a loyalist and a confederation is arguing whether or not we should join Canada. We saw that last year. So when were you here last year? Um, earlier in, it was like July. I think it was July. So what happened was, Mike and Cheryl came, the original people's in Right. And they loved us. They used to come up and watch it every day. Mm -hmm. And then Mike one day was like, well, can I, can I join you? And we were like, yes. <laughs> so This is Mike Taskett, one of the First Nations interpreters who's now up here regularly. So he said, well, can, can I say this? And it was a little bit of the speech that his great-uncle or grandfather had made. <clears throat> yeah, it was... Either his great uncle or his great grandfather. I think it was a piece of a letter that he'd written okay. to Wilfred Laurier. Oh, thank you. Vitamin C, vegetable. Yes. Vitamin C. Oh gosh. Yes, please. Anyway, Bye. so Mike, we would at the point where um, Stewie should play the accusationist, and he would say, "I doubt anyone's asked the original people of this land what they want. Mm -hmm. and likely never will." And then he just turned and said. Has so anyone asked you, Sinja? And he was, and Mike stood up that first day. I mean, we were all reeking out and just amazed. And he just stood up and started talking. And he said, he talk, and then he kept expanding. So we did it every day for all, so from then on. And right. it meant so much to them. Right. And yeah. he just sort of said, you know, I'm happy to talk with you about this. And 
we're willing to talk about Canada, but we, we trust that you will. What did he say? He just said, we trust that you will deal in good faith. And I remember the line was he always said, there's one law for the Indian and another law for the white man. And it would just, it just stopped. But the first day we were like, yeah, because <laughs> like, it's like we never, we don't know how this is going to go. We don't know if anyone's yeah. going to get mad. Yeah. So people ended up loving it. And it just changed because we used to end the scene on a joke. And then it was like, that was the end. And then he would say, I'd, I'd say, well, clearly we need to keep talking about this. Let's meet at my saloon tomorrow. And he would say, by law, I'm not allowed in your saloon. And then Stu would say, we'll meet at the bar company. The words there were, let's meet tomorrow at the Barker and Company claim. And then that was how the scene ended instead. So people would just kind of be like, and so it was just the most awesome. Yeah, it was really great. Matt's about to say when we were here. Precisely when we were here last year. We were on, (laughs) because we came for two days, we were on your town tour. I remember you coming. And James and Mike were following along together. That's right. And, and then at the very end, you stopped and you recognized right. Mike and thanked him and said, hey, he's going to be part of this. Yeah. And and so that's the day we were here. That's so cool. So we, got, we got to be there. And so we, we shared that with Mike because he asked if we'd been here, you know, have you been here before? And we said, yeah, we were here last year. As a matter of fact, we were here on that day. Oh, wow. was, I remember that, and that was great. And he probably said, that was really, really cool. That's yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> what he said. And we told him how everybody was cheering up. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the much. day that it started, like the very first day that he interpreted, at the very end of the tour, the whole season we've been saying, and this year we're going to have the very first, and then it was the day that he started, and I said, and today is the very first day, and I just totally, I was like, I'm not going to be able to get through this, and I couldn't, I just totally started crying, I was like, give me a second, give me a second, and then I was like, all right, it was like, I can't believe I'm saying this, like, I can't believe it. And it's momentous. Yeah. And a lot of it is down to this guy. Worked really hard to get that. Thank you, James. A lot of people, for sure, and Mike and Cheryl in particular. Yeah, so, well, Mike and James started, we had, they had some money for Aboriginal days, and I remember you saying that people were kind of like, oh, do we want to do this? Because you worry so much about whether you're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we did it, and, and James did it all by himself for years, just James, you know, figuring out how to bring in different performers and mm-hmm. talk with them. But Mike and Cheryl are amazing. Like, they oh. specialize in this, and they basically said they would come because of James. They would no. do this. So. Mm-hmm. That's really, really special. And yep. Cheryl's um, former board member of Aboriginal Tourism, BC. She's a board member of New Pathways to Gold Society, which is an economic development What's her last organization, name? Chapman. And she's the economic development officer herself for the Hatsumuth Soda Creek First Nation. And Mike, um, among many other things, was uh, chief of the Bonaparte Nation for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then also helped, he was on, like he said, on national committees, um, the Colonial Accords, he was at the table for wow. that. When they did Cahalia Village in Stanley Park, they brought him in to be sort of a consultant and interpreter there. So he's got this wild, crazy, incredible past experience and so much. And then just to be able to be here mm-hmm. with him and with Cheryl, and they're so down to earth. Yeah. It's really great. We watched, I don't know about all, but certainly many of the Barkerville live videos. Oh, right. there. <laughs> I've been offered a badge as being a Barkerville top fan. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Badge sewing. Yeah. Badge stitching. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lie from the 
That's the one that I lost. It was it crazy. Out. crazy. It was so funny because they're. Jeanette was in WROL with me. We were trying to, um, my character in WROL is trying to sort of defend girl guides because the Jules' character is like no, attacking yes, them, attacking yeah. them because the guys' badges are for all these really cool things and the girls are for like pet care and yeah. 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 spirit. Showing them all the time. What, what, what's that one for? <laughs> character is badge stitching. <laughs> I thought I was going to lose it during my pledge song with all the actions, but I so practiced funny. that so hard that I got through that one, but it was bad stitching that I lost it. <laughs> Chris really got me laughing. That was a really... Oh, yeah. Really, he was really hilarious. Funny. His delivery of so many... He spoke with, with the precise earnestness mm. of a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. He was kind of a dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was telling James the, the plot, and as I was telling it about, I was making more connections. Whoa. Super hot. Mm. Like, because the play is so dense, so mm. yes, oh I'm my telling God. him, I'm just, oh, wait a minute. That's why that's... <laughs> oh, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I usually read a play once, and I pretty much got a good handle on it. I read it once, and I was like, huh. And then we did the reading, and I was like, I can't kind of understand it. And then when we were doing the actual reading, I was like, oh, oh. even more connections yeah. now. Like, there's oh, so yeah. many. Yeah, it strikes me as the kind of show that you could see it five, six, seven, yeah. eight times, and each time pull out another little nugget of time. Yeah. I was really happy with the stage directions. Yeah. They almost became another character because they were in depth. You know, they talked about emotion and talked about everything. You know the way the stage setting was, and, and the movements of the characters, which we didn't get with everybody standing out there. Yeah, and their lectern, but she was, had him not say some of them. Yeah, and then they kind of went through it pretty methodically about what to say and what not to say. Anything that was basically like an acting note. It's like, okay, well, we can the yeah, actors can take that. care of that one. We don't need you to read that one. And the way they were written, that's where I say it. It was almost like that was another mm-hmm. another character of the story because there were some things that that whatever the stage direction was brought something to the scene, and there was a couple of aha moments or that's pretty funny, you know, and those sorts of things which added to the already humorous thing we just heard. Now we hear the description of what's about to happen. It's like, oh god, that's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, you should read it. I, I would love I to do it again. And I oh, said me to too. And I was so and Michelle, like, let's do it again sometime. Mm-hmm. Let me know. I'll make the drive. Well, honestly. yeah, I said Crystal will come on. <laughs> oh, damn straight. Um, Dirk was saying something about the mic pitching it as a reading series for Theater Northwest. That'd be nice. Yeah, what a, that's the first time I've ever done a reading like that. And I thought, what a great way to stage a play. We've talked a lot at the sunset about readers' theater and how truly cool it is and how it really is a different thing. And Tim Sutherland, before he passed away, he, remember that one winter he did a play reading group we'd meet once a week and just go over to his oh. apartment and we'd all, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of Canadian theater. So he'd just pick up these different plays and we'd just go over to his house and, and read them. But yes, yeah, so there's been a couple of plays that, honestly, when I saw them mounted, I thought it lost something from wow. And I yep. would just watch the actors wow. sitting on stage reading it. Yeah, I just I feel like you connect more with the words. Mm-hmm. because you don't have all this other stuff to be distracted by. And having such a good stage direction reader mm-hmm. present that was clear and, and, and brought something to that piece of it. I always love, whenever they ask me to do a reading, I'm like, yeah, I'd yep. love to do it. Also yep. because the thing that stresses me out the most is lines. Not remembering my lines. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. 
Yeah, that was a real treat yeah. to not have to memorize. Why do you remember all those lines? I don't. I read them off of this thing in front of me here. Well, when we were, well, actually, when we were auditioning Maggie, it was pretty funny because I wrote um, the Confederation scene, and then we hadn't quite rehearsed it up to where we wanted it to be, so we said, we're not going to put that in the schedule until the second week after we open. But somebody made a mistake, and it was put in the first week, so suddenly we're like, we have to do this today. <laughs> We're not ready. <laughs> so I had the script in a book in the podium. <laughs> and then Stu, it was Stu, Brendan, no, Stu and Rowan. And they kind of, they got all the thought units out, but the lines weren't completely right. But then we kind of just learned it wrong. Hmm. So then Stu printed it out so we could audition Maggie. And as, she, as we're reading it, we're like, <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> so totally changed the scene. Where's that? So you learned it wrong. We and learned never it wrong fixed and it. never fixed it. <laughs> Is your son still doing um, film and auditioning and stuff? Well, well he's certainly auditioning. Yeah. yeah. And then he was supposed to do a fringe play this year, but his venue that he was supposed to be in is no longer a venue. Mm. So they're still working on the play. It's a play he was in. They took it to Edinburgh Fringe. Right. Oh, cool. First year after. In ends university, he goes to Edinburgh French. Wow, like, dude! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so it, it's that play. It's called Waiting for Garbo. So they're remounting it. Well, I'm he's, quite well. Thank you. Yeah. Right. I was absolutely famished, but now, like, not. No, I'm not. <laughs> not, not at all famished That's anymore. Good That's really kind right, of That's how good. food is supposed to work. <laughs> so yeah, they're working on the music. He's actually learning to play the trombone and the ukulele for this play. We'll see how that goes. I'd love to play the ukulele. I, I, I muck no about on the, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I muck about on the ukulele because I have one that's bright purple with sparkles. Nice. Um, yep. And uh, I'm I find it easier than the guitar because it's only got four strings. <clears throat> so I can play way more chords on the ukulele than I can on the guitar. But every, still, when it gets to anything complicated than I'm okay can we play it in a different key so <laughs> I like these chords that only require one finger <laughs> I have a couple of ukuleles Danette bought me a couple I, I had to learn early on in our relationship that when he says I've always wanted this not to put a great deal of weight in it <laughs> when we first met each other he was or we first started dating he was like I've always wanted a rock tumbler a what? rock tumbler, rock tumbler. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh that's so cool I, so our first Christmas together I, I got one and Ooh. I found it and I went to a rock you know a lapidary shop and mm -hmm. I got it all and I gave it to him and he was kind of like oh a rock tumbler he's <laughs> like yeah you've always wanted one he's like I have he's <laughs> saying I've always wanted one and then the same thing happened with the ukulele he's like no, <laughs> the ukulele is true I just <laughs> and I played for, I, I practiced for a little while a little while yeah first got them, but mm -hmm. I'm terrible girls will probably play practicing yeah. you know that's why I never I, I wanted to play guitar as a kid I wish that I could it's one of the reasons yeah. why I'm so keen to have our girls yeah our girls are on piano I love right. singing and I just love to be able to do it on my own <laughs> have a mandolin too and it was one of those things where I grew up in an absolutely non-musical house so when I got to university when I got to UVic I had to break through my terror of singing or anything musical and then basically every job I had as a professional was in, I had singing as an artist so I kind of just had to really 
freaking learn, but I still like wouldn't hatch it because everything with COVID, my the cast that I was supposed to have wasn't the cast that I ended up with. Mm-hmm. So I had to say to Patrick, "All right, so I've written this and I'm going to direct it, but I don't speak music. So I'm going to tell you exactly what I want, and you'll understand. Mm-hmm. But I won't be using any of the correct terminology. <laughs> and we, so we kind of got a really, we figured it all out together. And yeah, you yeah. know, like, yeah. like I want it to be like, <laughs> okay, like, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> and then he and Leo would sort of say the words that you know, the universal, that. <laughs> universal term for. Well, even today, I always tease them when they nerd out. So the uh, new piano, the square grand, got just got restored. So today's the first day that Patrick was playing. Oh. And he's like, and it's really very ringy. And he said he really likes it. There's a couple of couple of uh, sticky keys. It's like, but it, and it rings a bit. And one of the pedals isn't quite working yet. And he's like, she's like, so you won't be playing any Chopin. And he's like, no, I won't be playing Chopin. And I'm like, and I'm like oh, oh, Chopin. Oh. <laughs> they can't see the eye roll, by the way. Maggie said that Patrick is probably the best musical director yeah. she's worked with. So that's cool. He's in, her, in her vast experience. Yeah. Well, and I've actually worked with a lot of musical directors, and he's my favorite. Cool. And I've worked with some really good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just very... But what I'd like to see, and Ross was the same. Like he meets people where they are, mm-hmm. you know. And, and but he, what made me laugh with Patrick is he's got a really good falsetto. So he would go, "Here's your note. Here's your note. Here's your note." <laughs> so he'd sing our actual note. So I didn't have to like it wasn't usually where they're singing mm-hmm. boys' note, and you have to just kind of. So it just cracks me up. Yeah. And yeah, and he was great. And we just I send him when I got this is the song that I, I lo- I've always loved the song. And this is the song I want this person to sing. And I'll send you a YouTube video of a version of it I really like. And then he, from that, kind of extrapolated what I wanted and, and then did it. And then he kind of sent me some notes back. Well, this version is a little too modern, the way they're singing it. Like, can you can you keep the same mood, but make it Victorian? And he'd be like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And then wow. Brendan was singing, like, Loch Lomond, and he was doing one note. And it's like, just one word in a certain way. And Patrick's like, yeah, that's too modern. Hmm. So you have to sing that. This way. Interesting. Yeah, it was really, because if you sing that, you're bringing it into like 1920s. <coughs> oh, I would love to know what yeah. word so, or note that was. I can't even remember. I'd have That's to ask cool. Brendan. Yeah. It was like the note within a chord yeah. when, they were all, when they were all blending together. Yeah, With so the chord notes. structure that it became was too modern. Too modern. I can and see then, that. And then to hear it and to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then correct it. <laughs> well, and I mean, Patrick like, had also wow. was, he's not a, he's been in several theater shows and played for theater shows, but... His connection with like directors and theater people is fairly limited. So he was kind of, and Amy and Richard are very music and very specific. So he wasn't used to someone who's sort of coming at it from a like feelings place like I was. <laughs> but with that, we really gelled on that. And it was really fun. Yeah, and he's just a very affable guy. Yeah. Oh, really willing to do stuff. So, and, and as I said, like we had Allison and Maggie and Brendan and JP, and those were our four big singers. And then Allison didn't come, and they needed JP on the text. So suddenly I was like, all right, so, okay, so it's my first time directing a, what is essentially a musical, and I've lost all these people. And my real strength is the comedy. And all my funny people have gone to other... Like, Stu is mm-hmm. one of the funniest actors. Like, Stu can make you laugh. Mm-hmm. People in the audience would be dying. Like, I would think <laughs> they're going to need some medical help because they'd be <laughs> laughing so hard. And Bre- and Andrew, too, is... Like, Billy Barker's yeah. hilarious on stage and a really accomplished stage actor. And then he... They had to take him. So I'm like, okay, so now mm. I'm, tr- I'm really having to think my way around this. And we're doing a broadcast, which I don't know. I've never done that. <laughs> but it was great. Yeah, and that, just the best cast. Like, we couldn't have asked for better. Two best better. things in that show. 
Who farted? <laughs> <laughs> Every single time I'm killing oh, yeah. myself. Me too. And Brendan in Knees Up Motherboard. Oh, yeah. And he starts so doing his high kick. Oh, and we told him that the other day when we saw him. I was just like, I'm rolling on the floor and laughing so hard. It's just unbelievable. And I know Brendan, like, just from working with him several times, is that just in person sitting around talking with him, he's not, he's not the kind of guy that's just, like, making you bend over laugh. But he's hilarious on stage. And yeah. it's like, let's just go for it. Like, let's have you be... Nobody ever lets you, yeah. him be funny because he's yeah. handsome and he's mm-hmm. a really good singer. So it's like, <clears throat> you know, he can be funny. Let's let him be funny. Yep. Yeah, he's um, really well, funny. yeah, he did. He was he he was funny. Oh yeah, he was oh. funny. I will vouch oh. for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about the doctor's case and uh, find I heard out it's how. a really good show. I've heard it's really good. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> Never seen it again. No. no. So, it's this how weekend. do I find are you, it? Are you here this weekend? No, we're leaving tomorrow. tomorrow. It's too bad. <laughs> I know. So um, James, well, you tell us. Tell us about <clears throat> Doctor's Case by Stephen King, turned into a marvelous award-winning film by Mr. James Douglas, who is sitting right now across the table from me. Or <laughs> so weird toe. <laughs> I can I can get you uh, I can get you to see the film. Um, so yeah, uh-huh. the Doctor's Case is a, a Sherlock Holmes story that Stephen King wrote back in 1987. A bunch of authors put together a collection called The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and they published it on the centennial of the first Sherlock Holmes story. So a bunch of different authors from all over the world. And uh, Stephen King wrote one called The Doctor's Case that was then reprinted in uh, a short story collection called Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which I read back in 1993 when it came out. And I remember, I was, I was always a big um, Sherlock Holmes fan, but specifically of the, the Grenada TV series with Jeremy Brett. Oh, yes. He's, yeah. Yes, I remember but, those. Right, yes. He was, he was very he was, well cast. Yeah. Very well cast. And the, they, you know, they, for the most part, were fairly faithful adaptions and adaptations of the original stories. But it was just simply because they were always playing them in series during PBS pledge drives. When yes, I was yeah. Growing up. And my <laughs> mom was a PBS fan, so I watched mm-hmm. a lot and just loved them. And so I remember that story in particular because it's the, the, the conceit of it is, is that it's Watson, who is now in his 80s. Mm. writing as he always did he wrote the stories the accounts of Sherlock Holmes adventures it was always from Watson's first person perspective Mm -hmm. most of the time but this is 50 years after this particular case that he's writing about and he figures he now can because Holmes has been dead for 30 years and it happens to be a recounting of the one and only time Watson solved a case before Sherlock did and uh, it it takes place in a English manor house that um, a dastardly villain of a lord, Albert Hull, um, who's been terrible to his family all their lives. He's just a, you know, a Donald Trump <laughs> kind of figure. Um, he is murdered in what seems to be the perfect locked room mystery. So Lestrade goes to Sherlock Holmes and says, you know, I've, I've got one for you. I don't think you're going to be able to solve this. And as it turns out, he doesn't. Watson does. But cool. there's, a, there's a little thing that happens in it, the reason why. And it, the, the conceit of it is that Sherlock Holmes is allergic to cats. And so he's having an allergic reaction because there's 10 cats at this house. And as a result, misses something, a piece of evidence that ah. Watson sees. Which I won't spoil the ending or anything, but <laughs> it's got a couple of twists and turns all the way through it. And I've always, re- so I've always really liked the story, and I've always wanted to make a film. And I've done a little bit of writing and producing for 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 different kinds of multimedia, but I've never actually directed a film before. And I would never have even considered. Uh, although when I got to Barkerville, I did a, I did fantasize a lot about that particular story and trying to 
film it here because we have so many, you know, interiors that could double as Victorian Absolutely. England and that sort of thing. But I never really seriously considered it. And then I found out in the spring of 2016 that Stephen King actually has a program called the Dollar Baby Deal, in where and he started it back in 1977. And basically any of the short stories that he holds the license to, he hasn't sold the rights to anybody else, he has an ongoing list on his website. Aspiring filmmakers and film students can apply to get the non-commercial rights to be legally allowed to adapt the story and make a film out of it, but it's a non-commercial license, so you can't sell the film to anybody without further licensing, and very few people have done that. But it's more of an opportunity to get people making quality films using good source material, basically. So there's been um, Frank Darabont, who went on to direct The Shawshank Redemption Mm. and The Green Mile. He was a dollar baby to start with back in 1983. So I, I looked on the list and it turned out that The Doctor's Case was one of the stories that was that was on the list. And I thought about it for a while and I even went so far as to talk to a friend of mine named Michael Coleman, who wound up playing Watson in the film. Huh? Uh, he was a guest at, at FanCon one year in Prince George because he was on Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the dwarves. seen many episodes of that. Yes, he's happy I was, the dwarf. <laughs> I was, okay, I was, I was going to be on a panel at MissCon about Once Upon a Time. Oh, really? Somehow I got... <laughs> into that and then was like well maybe I better watch the show <laughs> I hadn't seen a single episode I binge watch um, anyway anyway so yes I know what you mean <laughs> okay um, it's, and I because I thought he would make an interesting Watson like he's got a he's a he's a small guy but it kind of very well built he had sort of a military-esque way of walking about you know marching around Michael Jackie? Michael, oh, Michael, Michael yeah. and uh, you know it's sort of against type for him uh, which is one of the reasons why he was pretty excited about it. Mm-hmm. So he gave me some early encouragement, but then like six months went by and mm-hmm. I hadn't even really considered it. And then that's when I was doing some video work here in Barkerville with J.P. Winslow, who's one of our long-term uh, interpreters. And he's a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. And so we had been talking about Sherlock Holmes one day and then I was uploading the footage that we'd shot during the day and thought, you know, he, he looks a little bit like, again, not your stereotypical Holmes, who's, you know, often portrayed as being over six feet tall, which is how he's mm-hmm. described. Mm-hmm. JP is certainly not that. But, <laughs> but he and Michael are relatively the same size, so I knew that that actually could work out really well because they, you sort of would forget about the fact that he's not Christopher Lee playing Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Um, so as soon as he said yes, I went and, and actually put in a little application. It was like a 300-word text box on, on the website and sort of explained the situation, where we were, what we wanted to do. And a few days later, I had a contract. To, wow. and, and there had been another Canadian group back in 2013 that had gotten the rights to do it. But from what I can tell, they never finished their film. There was sort of a teaser that was made for a Kickstarter campaign. Um, and uh, But that's it. Um, not that you can see them online, you have to see them mostly at festivals and whatnot. Uh, so as far as I know, we're still the only one, only group that has has made this particular film. Mm. But again, it originally was going to be like, we'll make it around here, we'll sort of do it as cheaply as possible, and then... Things get, tend to get a little bigger <laughs> when you involve James <laughs> and Norm Coyne, yes. his producing partner is also, just like everything has to be bigger. And Norm is the fellow who produces FanCon in Prince George. Okay, right. okay. 
so he wanted to come on board as a producer and and uh, and I had met sort of serendipitously a few years earlier um, Denise Crosby who mm-hmm. played uh, yeah. Tasha Yar on yep. Star Trek oh, yeah. Next Generation yep. um, she had come to Barkerville actually through an, an initiative with Norm Coyne we, we brought her in for a geek weekend that we did here oh no kidding and she and I kind of hit it off and emailed back and forth a couple of times since then I'm a huge nerd so this is like the greatest <laughs> thing in the world for me right um, but I knew that um, with the story the doctor's case the story is, is written specifically like one of the original Sherlock Holmes stories so it's Watson's voice he's talking about what happened 50 years ago he just basically sets that up in a couple of paragraphs and then boom you're right into the events of the story which I thought wouldn't really translate to film I wanted him to be talking to somebody because I still wanted to get capture that language I wanted to as sort of an exercise more than anything else preserve as much of Stephen King's actual writing in the film as I could because one of my complaints about so many adaptations is that people take the plot and the characters and then they just have them say different stuff than what they say in the book and mm-hmm. one Lost of the things voice and yes, yeah. yes Stephen yeah. King is his voice right yeah. like I mean yeah. it's fairly common genre stuff that he's writing but he elevates that mm-hmm. stuff just by the way he writes about it so I wanted to try and preserve as much of that as possible and I thought it would be possible to do that with a Sherlock Holmes story because it's what? I was just thinking about boot <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well, the side part of that one <laughs> um, <laughs> now I'm curious <laughs> I'll tell you about it after okay alright great story <laughs> so James, I was I had read a couple of Stephen King books, but I wasn't like just an out of control fan. And then yeah. James, when we started dating, he bought On Writing, and I read right. Stephen King's book On Writing, which is just such a great book. I haven't read it. I, it's one of the books that everybody says yeah. you should read. Oh and have God. I read it yet? No, I have it's not. Fantastic. <laughs> and then I started to just read his books. But we got uh, when we first were living together in Wales, we got one of his short story books, and I was reading it, and there was just this one story about. But it just starts off one way and just like an episode of The Simpsons, like you don't, and then it veers off. So it starts off with this guy where he has to go meet his wife, uh, his ex-wife, and he doesn't want to get a divorce, but he's going there to meet her and her divorce lawyer. And and when he's waiting in line, he notices some really odd behavior in the maitre d', like it's just kind of weird. And then the maitre d' says something that doesn't make any sense. And at some point, the maitre anyway, he's having his his lunch with his divorce lawyer and his wife, and the. um, the maitre d' ends up just going postal and killing everyone, but he, <laughs> he stabs the lawyer, and the lawyer goes, boot! <laughs> he stabs him in the head with a knife, this maitre d'. the lawyer d'. goes, boot! And then he dies, and he's like, and I just said, swear to God, his last human word on earth <laughs> was boot. And I just read that, and I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> so, it's, like, so, it's so absurd. Boot! <laughs> As soon as you start talking about how he's doing King's voice, because yeah. it's true, like he talks, like he reads, like yeah. he writes, like he speaks, yeah. which is the ultimate goal. But that boot, just, <laughs> and then I was just gone, like I couldn't get, I put the book down, and just, I couldn't even tell him because I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> so it's become part of our lexicon. Yeah, I was yeah. just like boot. <laughs> We have a lot of those in our family. Too. <laughs> Stupid things. Go back to So where were we? Where were we? Um, oh yeah. So um, I wanted Watson to actually on film. I thought it would be great to have. Ow, my tummy hurts. <laughs> uh, you're gonna have to replay. <laughs> 
no, really, listen, I'm listening to you. Just go on. <laughs> I thought it would be great to have an older Watson, like the actual 80-some-odd uh, Watson, talking to somebody and telling this story, and then we could use it as a <laughs> sort of a bookend prologue, epilogue, and then with no, you know little that. sort of princess variety like interjections in right. between to kind of break uh, yeah. up the action of the, and make the film a little bit longer because I wanted it to be about an hour. And uh, so I figured that I would, if she said yes, I would hail Mary pitch Denise Crosby, um, and that I would write uh, the role of whoever it was that Watson was talking to specifically for her and by then my, my dad and I had been talking about it and he's a World War II historian and military author and, um, he was saying well you know because Holmes or um, Stephen King's story is set in 1899 but if we backed that up to 1889 which actually worked out way better for us in our location shooting um, 50 years after that would be basically right during the Blitz in London, right? And you could have him be in a military hospital or something like that, cool. yeah. talking to a military nurse. So that's how that whole thing came about. And then of course realizing that, and especially when we got the Craig Derrick Castle location, which was a so story amazing. in itself. Like, yeah. they were so good to us. Oh, cool. we, pushed, we pushed our luck a lot, but hmm. we realized that you know, we have this amazing place. We should just do the whole thing here. So the, the scenes that take place 50 years after the murder mystery, or in exactly the same location that the murder mystery took place no in way. on purpose because yeah. it was tradition for them to take over manor homes and turn them into mm -hmm. you know, field hospitals and that sort of thing. So it mm -hmm. made total sense that, in fact, that is the history of Craig Derrick Castle, but with the First World War rather than right. the Second World War. Okay. The, yeah. So the idea is that Watson has, he's sort of doing a little uh, last tour of some of the places that he and Holmes had their greatest successes, and so he's sneaking around the grounds of this <laughs> old house, Hull, Hull House, which is where this murder, where he solved the only, you know, he solved the murder first, and he hurts, he trips and hurts himself, and winds up dislocating his knee, or hip, I think is what we had it. And so he's in this military hospital because they've taken it over as sort of a triage unit or whatnot for the, for the Blitz, and he winds up talking to this American military uh, captain who is volunteering um, during the war because America hasn't entered the war yet. Right. And so it's the conversation between the two of them that leads to him telling the story of Lord Hall's murder and how it was solved. So I wanted to, that nurse to mm -hmm. be Denise, and she totally said yes without even a script. I mean, she first invited us down to, to L.A., so Norm and I went down to oh, L.A. and talked with her, and then she was like, yeah, I would, I'll totally do this. Oh. And she was great. Yeah. But then that led to, well, okay, now we have to have somebody that has the same kind of experience that right. she does as our older Watson, right? right? Because I don't want to embarrass myself. This is my first movie, yeah, and if sure. I don't cast that right. And so through a friend of, actually one of my dad's very best friends uh, is a woman named Jane Scott Barsanti, and her daughter, Kim Barsanti, um, ran yeah, an agency. She ran Muse Agency in Vancouver for yeah. years, and now she works for, yeah, Lucas Town. Okay. So yeah. she's one of their agents now. Cool. Um, and so she knew the the agent for William B. Davis. Right, who, right. Know, I'm a huge X-Files fan, so I was yeah, like, yeah. well, if there was a way that I could get to him, so they, we got the script to him, and he said yes. Oh, and, you know, I mean, they didn't charge a scale, but they did it for a, a really reasonable rate, and they were both so great in the, in the end. 
So I got to basically direct those two people, William Davis and, <laughs> and Denise Crosby, in the pivotal scenes that are, that are taking place 50 years after the fact. So we got to develop an interesting little backstory for Captain Norton that, that plays into the, the thing as well. But that's completely our fabrication. It has nothing to do with the original story that came It was out. a crazy experience, though, because I had to go down and direct the parliamentary players, which we did for several years. Right. And so I was just kind of, I kind of came down with the kids and came on set and did my couple of days, but um, everyone else was just shattered because mm. they were filming all night long mm. and just around the clock. Because that was the deal with Craig Derrick is that it, we, they would only charge us staff time for some yeah. curatorial people to, to be there and make sure we didn't wreck the place. And then our friend Jan ran Carhouse, Emily Carhouse. Right. So, but, but the I staff mean, time was linked to yeah. the fact that we had to shoot between 5.30 p.m. Yeah and what turned out to be 5.30 a.m. Yeah. Oh my God. But I mean, everyone night. was just shattered, <laughs> yeah. and I came down, I almost felt like guilty, because it's like, I'll just swan in and <laughs> do my scenes and sweat out. Like, Michelle was falling asleep on the floor, and like, everybody really, really went. Yeah, we should let this guy go. Yeah, we should. Can we pack it up? Yeah, I'll give you Thank some pickup box. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was really, like, everyone kind of did triple duty. Just like, triple duty. Wow. Yeah. People wow. were just really. Michelle, who was an actor in the And Michelle was in, in Europe and flew, they flew home. Oh, no way. Is two enough, or do we need one more? Uh, probably one more. Okay. okay. Just so we know. Mix stuff together. You guys. Go ahead. You guys go ahead. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just give you guys one more box then. Sure. And sure. Here, so do you guys want to? No, you get, go ahead because we'd be giving it to Maggie anyway. So. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't want her to have it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was great. It was a really great experience, and cool. we played at forty different festivals worldwide over the last two and a half years. And wow. Fifteen awards. Fifteen. Yeah, wow. Well of, done. Of about Who's twenty nominations. In total, nice. But. Nice. Well, it's been great. Yeah, it's been it's been really. I mean, it wasn't. It, yes, it was not painless. It was really painful. And then James Oliver Christmas break was editing it. Do you want help with that? No, I think I can do it. So James was editing over Christmas break, and he was. I mean, I was really glad. Thank you that I actually wasn't there for most of it because it would have been too hard. Like yeah, being yeah, married yeah. to James, it's like I can. Yeah. I just can't do this. Yeah. So I was glad that I was able to sort of come in, film my scenes and and go home and go to yeah. the parliamentary parliament yeah. buildings and do <laughs> had a pretty good yeah. built in excuse. Yeah. yeah. My one little Craig Derrick Castle story is that I'm not sure if it was the first time I'd ever been there. I'll just wait for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just got back from the Soviet Union tour that I oh, did I after that, our yeah. third year. And my mum came to visit. So what shall we do? Well, we wound up going to Craig Derrick Castle. Won't this be nice? So we're doing this to our Craig Derrick Castle. It is lovely. It's beautiful. But, oh, look, says my mom. This stuff is so old. And I'm like, yep. Been to a couple of 11th century cathedrals in the last two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. That's my story. That's it. I remember when I got the job at Car House thinking, Oh, it was built in 1865. That's so old. <laughs> and then going to Europe and going, oh, yeah, that's like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you did that right after. Was it right after yeah, graduation? It was, well, it was or, crazy or... that, uh, so we graduated and then um, I knew that I did PST and then I knew it as soon Phoenix as PST. Phoenix Summer Theater. Oh, oh Phoenix Summer Theater. As <laughs> soon as PST was over, I had nothing. So yeah. I was just looking at the want ads and I saw this want ad for... 
uh, an actress or outgoing person, because they're the same, <laughs> to play Emily Carr. And so I was like, I'm not showing this to anyone. <laughs> so I went and auditioned for that and got it. And then uh, it was with Donna Tunney. That's how we met. And she got the job too. And so we were both playing. Oh, and cool. so it was me and her playing Emily Carr at Carr House and then tour guiding. And, and they were doing theater and all their other sites, but it was all with these non-actors. And so we, Donna's like... Outgoing people. As our, yeah, as our um, contract's ending, she's like, okay, so let's just put together... And we got along really well. So like, let's put together a proposal to say that we'll take over the theater and all the sites. And I remember thinking, you can do that. Because <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. And, I, and she was like 29, so she'd done all kinds of things like this. Yeah. But I was like, I don't know how to do that. So... <laughs> We went, put together a pitch, and then we went to the meeting and said, well, we'll take over the theater and all the sites. And they were like, oh, great. Here's some money. The theater so we, and all the sites. Were yeah, so they did Car House, Helmkin House. Oh, um, oh, oh, I see. Craigflower Farm and Point Dallas House. So right. we took it over for like, and we hired um, Duncan Stewart, who's now a big-time agent in New York City. And we hired uh, Janet Munstel. And we yeah. just came in our <laughs> Trish Patton. And like, we just hired all our friends yes. to come in and do these As you do. And develop school programs. And we developed school programs. Of. And it's how I got into the museum field. And yeah. we did it for like a few, a few years. And then... Like most things that are too good to be true, it's too yeah. good to be true, and they lost all their funding. And so we, then I um, went to Europe and came back and worked for them one more season, and then came up here. Right. And started working right. in Barkerville. But I just so, really, but yeah. that year that we did PST, I did PST, and then I did Car House, and I also did a show with Theater BC at the Belfry. And I didn't have a driver's license. I just had my bike. Oh my so God. I spent that whole summer just like <laughs> finishing a show. Like and I remember was, it was impossible. Like there was no way I could get from one thing to the next thing. So I made up this story. I totally lied to the, the stage manager and said I'd wiped out on my bike. Oh no. Did you? I called her and I wiped out and I, and I think I'm okay, but I should probably like maybe go see a doctor. And she was like, okay, because I had to be up at the Phoenix for like a rehearsal. So I made up this big story about wiping out on my bike. I totally didn't. Did you bash your knees I did, a little but bit I just so that like you... wore long pants for a while. So it's like, yeah, road rash and everything. Smash gut to that stage manager listening yeah. to this <laughs> I knew it! But I was like, I, I, I can't. Like the, it was the one time it's like I physically can't cannot go to all there three jobs. No. Yeah. In the amount of time I have to get from like Ross on his roller with Ross and his yeah. rollerblades and crap. In, in, incidentally, I'm an actor and not at all outgoing, so you yeah. know. Well, that's most actors are. That's why I thought it was funny. It is. Well, it's one thing that you fight in the museum field is that, and lots of people they say, well, we really want to have theater, so we'll just like get Bob, who, who you know, who rakes up the leaves, and he's always really funny. So we'll get so him to It ta- often takes a long time. Well, not anymore. I mean, yeah. historical interpretation has really moved into a very credible form of theater, but for a long time it was like, okay, you can't just get Bob who rakes the leaves be- and put a hat on him and have him play a character. Like, that's not going to work. Not- I have no idea how well this records as we're walking, but I, I, I want to actually... Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for your patience while we talk for a long oh, time. Oh, thank you very, very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for being willing to chat oh, with us, That's and great. I'll send you what I come up with. It'll be great. A lot of, I'm not going to want to cut too much stuff out of there. That was all. Anything like, incriminating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it was so great to spend some time with those two and to have reconnected with Danette after all these years. You know, I've never been much of a history buff, but boy, when it's told in the form of a story, I love it. I've placed a 
hold on Anne Walsh's book, Moses, Me, and Murder, from the library so I can learn more about Wellington Delaney Moses and the murder of Charles Blessing. Thanks for taking this little break with me, and I hope you've enjoyed meeting some cool folk. Next week, next week, I begin Chapter 1 of Gatekeeper's Deception. I hope you'll join me. Thanks very much to Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie, and always David and Sharon. Thanks to Danette and James for a terrific visit. And thanks to you for listening. Now go be fantastic. Boo! <laughs> <laughs>